Good morning. I have listened to a lot of music in my day, probably too much, and you will not find songwriting um, that good very often. Uh, uh, God has gifted uh, Melody in a really particular way, and I hope that she continues to use her gift to bless the church, and I'm thankful for Daniel for sure some arrangement happened there. Uh, so uh, what I want you to see with the two things that we just saw, uh, the gospel project, people using their gift, understanding the word, understanding how to draw and capturing your imagination to help you to understand the word, right? Making it clear for visual people like myself, things like the Bible project tend to be very, very helpful. Then you look at music and, and, the, and the way that all this beautiful background that we saw on the Bible project video comes to life and captures your imagination again so that you can be clear on what it says. And Kyle is busy in the booth back there trying to figure out how to get this contraption on my face to sound really good right now. And so all the gifts of the body coming together to be a blessing. Kyle, can I help in any way? So it's really hard to follow those two things, right? Those are two really, really helpful and good expressions of God's gift in our church, and, and I'm thankful for those, thankful for a church that um, is open to people expressing their gifts that way. Uh, and I, I saw that in my own life uh, as a new believer. Um, probably started teaching way before I should have, uh, but uh, they were willing to take a risk. And so uh, for these last 15, 16 years or so, I've gotten to teach the Bible a lot. Hadn't done it much uh, this year, and so I'm glad to be back up here with you. Have this hedge of protection here. If that's not a hedge of protection, I don't know what it is. Uh, so I don't know if it's to keep you safe or me safe. I don't know. Uh, we're going to be in the book of Jude this morning. That will be a bit of changing gears for us. Uh, we have been in the book of First, Second, and Third John, uh, and and really John is after the false teachers, the false prophets, and their false doctrines. And so he's he's helping us to see. He was helping us to see that their life and doctrine didn't keep in step with Christ and with Christ's teaching. Uh, this morning, we're going we're gonna to be in the book of Jude, super short. My daughter, Johanna, who's learning how to read, she loves Jude because she can read the name of it. So good job, Johanna Joyner. So it's a short book with a short name, and this morning we're going to get through the whole thing. And as the song goes, uh, we got a long way to go and a short time to get there. Burt Reynolds. So uh, this morning, uh, we're going to get through the whole book. And what you're going to see in the book is that he's not as concerned with the specific teaching that's going on. He really doesn't mean, mention it except for in one little spot. What he's concerned about these false teachers is their lives. And their lives have gone off the realm. You know, many of these guys, they could, they could pass a you know, final exam in, in seminary. Uh, they could you know, ace Old Testament. They could pass an ordina ordination exam. They could lead a legit Bible study. But Jude doesn't really care about that because their lives are showing that they don't believe the gospel. They don't believe the faith that was forever given to the saints. They reject God's authority. They make the rules up as they go. They love money and sex. And they are in danger of God's judgment because of their disbelief. And so that's what's going on here at the church that Jude is writing to the hard thing about reading the Bible 
is that it seems so far removed from where we sit this morning. And, and this letter especially, uh, it's going to have some parts that are a bit confusing. Uh, there are going to be stories that are mentioned that you're not really familiar with. And so it's my job this morning to guide you through the book, but it's your job this morning to, to stay right behind me, okay? I need you to stay like, really close to me. Walk along with me. So, so don't fall behind because when we get to the end of the book, we're going to find that Jude is going to unload this really strong and really clear instruction and beautiful truth about who God is. And so God wants to speak to you this morning. He wants to say something to you. He wants to maybe get on your case a little bit, but he wants to encourage you and build you up through his word. And so that's what we expect of the Lord this morning. And so let's pray and ask him to do that with great expectation. So Father, we do pray that you would give us your word this morning, not, uh, not just words on a page, uh, that is a gift to us, but by the Spirit, might you meet with those words and make them come to life through conviction, giving life and breathing life, new life into us, that we might love you, follow you, and give our lives fully to you again and again. We thank you for your word. We thank you for what you're doing in our lives, and we thank you for Christ. He is our hope. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. So if you'll look with me in the first couple of verses, uh, the first two verses, we see this. Jude introduces by uh, telling who he is. He says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. And so out of the gate, I want you to notice two things. We see a great humility in Jude and a great confidence and so if I was writing this letter to confront some false teachers, I think I would, I would lay down the Jesus is my brother card. But he doesn't do that. He's, he's humble. He identifies himself as a servant or a slave of Christ. He's fully under the authority and direction of Christ. And in doing this, he, 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 sets, him up, he sets himself up against, in contrast, to the people that he's going to talk about, these false leaders. Then he labels his audience with these three tags, called, beloved, kept. So he's confident about God's work in his believing friends, and he wants to share with them that confidence. And so your Bible might read kept for or kept by, and and it really could be either, but I think that the emphasis of the book makes us uh, read it kept by. That would be a better reading. And so, kept by Christ, he's instilling a hope for a church whose leaders have gone off the rails. And if they can't have confidence in their leaders, in whom can they have confidence? They have confidence in Christ. It's it's Christ, it's God who keeps them because he loves them and he called them into that love. We see in verses 3 and 4. He says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about the common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were destined for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our Master and Lord Jesus Christ. So Jude quickly announces his purpose for writing, and then we learn that he had to change things up. 
So it's like when you're out of town, you call your wife to tell her that you love her, you hear the kids in the background, and then you have to change the reason for which you called. You have to do a little instruction. And so it's much like that. Uh, he had a very uh, good intention and purpose for writing originally, but because of some circumstances, he had to do some instruction and do some correction. So some people have crept into the church, they've come in unnoticed, and they have made themselves at home and they're perverting the grace of God. And as we'll see develop through the letter, these folks are occupied with sexuality, rebellion, and disbelief. Those, two, those are kind of the big three things we'll, come, we'll see come out. And they do all of this under the banner of grace. As in, Jesus died to forgive my sins, therefore I can sin freely and ultimately avoid God's judgment. Jude says this is a perversion of grace and it denies Christ who is their master. They believe grace is a license to sin rather than a declaration of independence from sin. In the Christian life, we have two big ditches to avoid. On one side, the ditch, the ditch says, Christ's work is not enough to give me a right standing with God. So I need to do things in order to get God's love or to get into his good graces. On the other side, the ditch says, I believe in Jesus. He died to save me from the consequences of my sin, and therefore I am free to do as I please. So I drive older cars, um, and they tend to pull to one side of the road or the other. And so we're like this. We tend to pull to one side or the other based on our background, based on how we were raised, sometimes depending on our personality, sometimes depending on churches that we grew up in or who discipled us. So think about yourself. Which way does your heart pull? To the ditch that says, I have to do more or God will not love me? Or to the ditch that says, that says, God loves me. I can do whatever I want. Both of these are incorrect. Which way do you have to hold the steering wheel of your life to keep the car out of the ditch? My friends... The way of Christ says God loves you so much that he sent his son to die to pay the penalty for all your sins, past and present and future. And now that frees you to live in joyful obedience to God. He has freed you to live a life like Christ in love and service to others. And so it's a, a both and. A free life from sin to serve Verses 5 to 7 say this. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay in their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains until, under gloomy darkness, until the judgment of the day, of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So Jude unloads these three examples that his audience would know really, really well. And what he wants to do is to set up some illustrations, some examples, so that they can recognize who the people are in their midst. These people that have crept in unnoticed. He's trying to identify them. His first example is Israel. 
His point that is, even, is that even though the people who were brought out of Egypt, those who did not believe, they were destroyed later. So although they were under the banner of Israel, they were not ultimately saved because they did not believe. Jude makes this clear. There is no participation award. You don't get a medal for showing up. True belief and trust in Christ is what God requires. And so one writer calculates the level of destruction that he's talking about here. The people of Israel in the wilderness would be about 1.2 million people. Almost all of them did not go into the land. Over 38 years, that would be 99 people a day that are dying. 99 people a day that are dying. That's a lot. And so I want to encourage you. This is a high level of destruction and warning that he's laying out here as he speaks about the people of Israel. Lots of death and lots of destruction because of unbelief. And so he's trying to get the attention of his audience. The second he unloads is the angels. Here Jude presents a story that is familiar to them, but maybe not so much to us. And the point is this, that some angels did not submit to God, but they rebelled. They abused their authority, and therefore they will be judged. So even angels are not free from the consequences of rebellion and abuse of authority. And the third he gives us is Sodom and Gomorrah. Here's one you probably know a little bit better. Uh, he reminds of the, us of these old cities that had devolved into unbridled sexual societies where anything goes. God, in judgment, he rained down fire on those cities. And since that time, they served as a, an ever-present picture of God's just and destructive judgment. Even in our own culture, we, we hear of Sodom and Gomorrah, and we know that's a picture of judgment. This is not a pretty picture that he's painting. He's, he's comparing these leaders and those who follow them to three of the most horrifying examples one can think of. And in every case, destruction, judgment, and punishment is the outcome. And so his point is, judgment is coming for those who revolt against Christ through disbelief, unbridled sexuality, and, abu and abuse of power. He continues on in verses 8 to 12. He says, yet, in like manner, these people also rely on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. So, Jude gives us a bit more detail on exactly how these folks are functioning what they're up to. And so he highlights four specific things. They rely on dreams, they defile the flesh, they reject authority, and they blaspheme the glorious ones. Now, most of these things sound kind of strange to our ears, so, so let me see if I can give you a bit of a summary. Imagine people who do what seems best to them rather than consulting God and his word. People who reject God's authority in their lives, and this leads them to impure lives that deny Christ, his messengers, and his word. And so all these people, 
These are the types of people he's talking about. They found their way into the church, they've set up camp, and they're living life among the people. And we see in verse 9 and 10 that Jude sets out to illustrate his point by mentioning a story from their culture, another one. And it goes like this. After Moses dies, the head angel and the devil are contending for the body of Moses, mostly about whether or not he, he can have a proper burial. The devil says no because Moses had killed the Egyptian. And rather than laying the smack down on the devil, Michael simply says, the Lord rebuke you. So here Jude positions Michael as a good example of how to contend well by trusting the Lord. He knows that God will fight for him. He trusts in God's authority. But these false leaders do the opposite. When they are wrong or ignorant, they do not consult God and his word or the apostles. But like animals, they rely on their own instincts or seek their own thoughts. And this shows their rebellious bent and leads to their destruction. He continues continues in 11 to 13. Woe to them, for they walk in the way of Cain and abandon themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feast, and they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept away by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter destruction has been reserved forever. So Jude sets out another set of examples to identify and condemn these folks who have crept in. So Cain, Balaam, and Korah. These are not good Bible names for your kids. Don't do it. Korah sounds pretty cool, but don't. In Genesis 4, Cain rejects God's direct counsel. God talks with Cain face to face and says, hey, turn around, come to me. I want to show you grace. And he went on to jealously kill his brother. Not a good example. Then Balaam, he was a false prophet for hire and is often mentioned in the New Testament as a writer, uh, as a writer who he symbolizes false teaching and greed. Right? False teaching or greed are the things that go with Balaam. Not a good example. He's known for his deception and leading God's people into sexual sin. And so he's saying, just like those guys did, this is what the false teachers are doing. So imagine, in the church at that time, leaders are leading the people towards those types of sin. In number 16, we have Korah, who led a rebellion against Moses and tried to take Moses' place as prophet, which resulted... And he and a heap of people being swallowed up by the earth. And this was a sign of judgment against them for not believing that God had appointed Moses to lead the people of Israel. And so you're seeing this theme over and over again. Rebellion. Sexual immorality. They don't listen. They won't be led. They don't stay in their place of authority. Over and over and over again. Then he gives them this rapid fire set of word pictures that all look back to negative examples in the Old Testament. Examples of corrupt and evil leaders in Israel. And so he says, like reefs that can wreck a ship, or shepherds only concerned with themselves, or clouds who promise rain but don't deliver, trees that don't bear fruit as they should, 
churning waves that push up trash to the top or stars that don't stay in their places. All of this will resort, result in dark judgment for these leaders and those who follow them. So, so Jude takes uh, illustrations from land and sea and sky and, pay, and, and, and space, and he, he paints this holistic picture of corruption in reference to these leaders. He is saying, in every way possible, these men deny God, his message, and his ways. He is being very clear. Bad stuff is going on in the church. And I know that from where you sit, uh, it's hard to imagine how is all of this going on in the church? How, how is this happening? Because he says they've crept in. How do these people creep in? How do they come in unnoticed? How do they hang around? 14 to 15, he says this. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So what do you think is the point here? Right, repeated words and so forth and so on. Right, there's a whole lot of ungodliness going on, meaning that their lives are not conformed to God's life. And so Jude here takes a quote from a commonly known book at the time called First Enoch. And it's possible he alluded to the same work earlier in verse 6. And these books, uh, they wouldn't be considered scripture. Uh, And this quote here is not presented as scripture by Jude. Uh, It might be understood kind of like a mashup between a biblical commentary, uh, a historical book, and maybe some historical fiction. Uh, Either way... He's taking something from their culture that would be familiar to them. And he's making this blistering point with it. And here's the the point. God will judge all who live lives and speak words that are in contradiction to him. This is a common theme throughout scripture. Over and over and over again. God will judge his enemies. Those who are in contradiction to him. Those who speak against him. And that's the point that this quote is making. The Lord will fully and finally judge, convict, and punish all who stand against him. And Judas saying that this is the fate of these creepers who are misleading the church. If your life does not reflect, represent, and confess God and his ways, you are in immeasurable danger is the point that he's making. Verse 16. He says, these are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud mouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. So here, Jude changes up a little little bit. He kind of gets down to brass tacks and tells us exactly what's going on. Before he has described the actions of these creepers through negative comparison to cultural and biblical examples. But here he shoots really straight at the target by giving us five unmistakable characteristics of these leaders and those who follow them. And so much like you would see like an infographic on Instagram or on Instagram or Facebook, like like five ways to keep your house organized or, you know, uh, five things you can do to be a better employee. uh, He does a similar thing. Here's five ways that you know who these people are. 
And here's, here's the five things. They're complainers. They're never happy, and they're always looking for fault in someone else. They allow their own desires to lead them towards sin. They use their mouths to make themselves look good. They gather people around themselves that are for their benefit. So those are kind of the five big things that he's talking about. And, and if you're like me, this list hurts a little more than the obscure Old Testament uh, quotations and, and cultural examples that Jude was using before. Because I see a little of myself in these. I complain. I can look for fault. My desires can drag me around a bit. I want you to think that I'm important. I can fall into using people rather than serving them. So I want you to take a moment and, and let that soak in, this list. And so we're going to take a pop quiz. I'm going to give you five statements. I really want you to do this, okay? So wake up. If you're sleeping, wake up. I really want you to quiz yourself because this is important, because everything is at stake here. And so I'm going to give you five statements, and I want you to rank each statement from one to five, one being this doesn't describe me at all, to this describes me perfectly, okay? So really all you have to do is to remember five numbers. You're not going to have to show them to anybody. Don't worry. So, first statement. I am given to complaining through my words, actions, and thoughts. One to five. How would you rank yourself? You don't have to say it out loud. Two. I am given to finding fault in others and am not often very content. Three, I am given to doing what I want to do rather than what I know God wants me to do. Four, I am given to using my mouth and actions to make people think that I am better than I am. Five, I am given to gathering people around me that are of benefit to me rather than looking to serve those who don't benefit me. I think these are good summary statements to what is being talked about. And so this hits a little closer to home, right? It kind of gets in our face a little. And I think that that's, these diagnostic questions help us to see how did these people creep in? Because they look like you and I a little bit, right? It's not like they show up and they're like, hey, I'm here to deceive everybody. No. They slide in and the culture lets it live, right? And we get okay with it. So my question is, do you like what you see with the results of our quiz? And are you following Christ as closely as you would like? And, and what if this five-point list was applied to your home or, or to your work? How are you living out there and how are you living at home? And, and if, if you took your quiz and you gave it to your spouse, would they agree with what you said? Or would they say, absolutely not, that is not a one, that's a four. Because we know how we are, right? I want you to think that I'm better than I really am. Again. 
What would, it, what would this quiz look like if you had taken it a year ago or three years ago or five years ago or 10 years ago or 15 years ago or 30 years ago? Are you growing? Right? Are the results different or would they be exactly the same from five years ago? So there's, there's three ways to respond to the findings that we have in our quiz here. One, I need to get busy getting better. Two, I am just fine. Three, Jesus died for my sins, and so he accepts me as I am today and will constantly form me to his likeness as I trust and follow him by his grace. There's only three options. And responses one and two are rejections and perversion of grace. And the third is our only hope as we face our need and sinfulness. These verses implicate us at some level. What will you do in response to them? Will you get busy getting better? Will you justify your actions? Or will you accept the grace of God to change you into something like Christ? In actuality where you live and look like him. Let's look at 17 to 19. He transitions. And he says, But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, In the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. So now Jude reminds them of what the apostles said. And the apostles said scoffers would come, and they have come. And divisions, they'll they'll come, and and those divisions have actually come. They said ungodliness will come, and they're seeing it in their time. He attributes all of this to those who have crept in. And to, uh, to make this final point, he says that these people are devoid of the Spirit. This is like a huge exclamation point that says, finally and fully, They're devoid of the Spirit. So he's saying these people are not led by the Spirit. They're ungodly people. They don't know God. God doesn't live in them. And so we see this huge division of ungodly, worldly, or godly, Spirit-filled. And there's no two, uh, there's, there's no other category. Those are the only two that he's allowing for. The creepers, they follow their selfish passions and desires. And in doing this, they divide the church. And they set themselves up as their own authority and thus rebel against God and lead others to do the same. And so, uh, sitting where you sit in a pretty good church, you probably think, who would put up with this? Like, who would allow that? As most of you know, um, I I teach... uh, Haitian pastors and, and, and do a small Bible college and uh, work in Haiti and the Dominican Republic. And, and, and as I've worked with Haitians over almost the last 10 years, I've seen pastors who preach on Sunday and do voodoo on Saturday night. It's a thing. I've seen pastors who have HIV and then share it with their congregation. That's a thing. I know pastors who cause churches to split over whether or not to take the Lord's Supper from one cup 
or individual cups. That doesn't matter, but it's their preference, and they divide the church over because they are arrogant. I don't know of any churches, literally, and I'm not speaking with hyperbole, I don't know of any Haitian churches that teach the Bible systematically Old and New Testament, cover to cover, verse by verse. It doesn't happen. Most of them teach sections of the Bible that benefit them for what they want to accomplish. I've been in churches where the authority in the hand is so strong that to get up and use the bathroom, in a service, you have to raise your hand and ask. That's the level of authority that they want to have and exert over people. Church discipline is used on those who would question the pastor in any way. Most churches only have one pastor because they want full control. I say all this to make clear that there are places where this type of leadership that Jude is explaining is the rule and not the exception. We send people from our church all over the U.S., and often they will call us and say, man, there is something wrong here. Authority problems. Infidelity problems. Bible problems, where the Bible is not being taught. This happens not far from here. Many times... The word simply becomes a tool for these leaders. It's, it's not a measuring rod for them. They just want to use it on other people, not on themselves. And this seems to be where it all starts. And so they would take the Bible as something to stand on to gain advantage rather than have the Bible to stand under to be submissive to it. Those are different. By God's grace, our leaders here at this church are marked by deep humility. We have a pretty good church. And the word takes a a primary position. But how do we grow as a church? How do we grow from where we are to, to greater health? Not just saying, oh, we're pretty good. Like, how do we pursue God deeper into the places that he wants to take us? How do we ensure that that what Jude is talking about doesn't become a reality here next year? How do we we ensure that? How do we ensure and help our Haitian brothers and sisters to see revival and and to see health in their churches? And, And what about American churches that are suffering under this blight? What do they do? Jude has answers. As we look in verses 20 and 23, or 20 to 23, he says, But you, beloved, build yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those two who doubt. We'll get to 23 in a second. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. So Jude gives really clear prescription to his friends about what is next for them as they pursue health and freedom as the church. He says to build y'all selves up. This isn't individual, this is corporate. Build each other up. Build one another up. Build y'all selves up. 
And this is construction language. And he says construction of each other starts with the foundation of faith. Not a subjective personal faith, but an objective faith that consists of certain truths and beliefs. And so back in verse 3, he says, Contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. That's what he's talking about. Is an objective faith, a set of beliefs, a set of doctrines that you hold to, and it is your foundation, the gospel of grace that you stand on and you build from there. He's pointing them to fight in defense of what they were taught and what was handed down to them. So what is the object of our faith? Where do we begin this construction? Where is our foundation? And it's with the most holy one, with Christ. So let me ask you. What is your doctrine of Jesus? Where did you get it? Can you explain who Jesus is? Can you open your Bible and say he is this and he is this and he is this and he is this? Can you explain the fact that he's fully man and fully God? Or do you just put that on the mystery shelf and say, I don't need that. That makes you vulnerable. You, as a believer, have everything that you need to talk about those things in a really intelligible way. You have the word of God. And he's calling us to build on the foundation of who Christ is and his gospel. To know it, to own it, and to hand it on to our children Right? Well, where will your children, your children go from here? How will they know the things that they need to know? And it's because you will hand it to them. So Jude transitions from this destructive language to really constructive language. He, said, he says, build yourselves up on the faith by the Spirit, filled with prayer, God's love for you, and wait hopefully. So Jude says, build Pray, stay in love, and wait. And so how are you practicing these things? What relationships do you have that are focused on building others up? What time do you spend pursuing the Holy Spirit in prayer? How are you helping other believers know that God loves them? How are you helping them experience God's love? The love that Christ showed on the cross. How are you exemplifying that for people? What do you spend time waiting on? Do you spend more time waiting on videos to load than for Jesus to come back? The thing is spinning, right? It's loading. Like That's what we wait on. What is your anticipation? What are you waiting on? So if I gave you another test, right? What if the test was this? I build others up one to five. How would you rank yourself? I pray with confidence in God's work in others. One to five. I try to help other believers understand how much Christ loves them. One to five. I wait eagerly on Christ's return. One to five. These things are commands for us. We are told to do these things. And in doing them, this is how we contend for our faith. This is the contending, trusting that God will fight for us in these things. Verse 
So we're seeing uh, that Jude, he gives his friends some instructions on how to address some specific challenges as they face uh, building the church up. And he says, some will doubt God's love for them. He says, be merciful in response to that. And Jude is speaking from experience here. You remember in Mark 3, Jesus' family thinks that Jesus is crazy, and so they go find Jesus. And they try to take him home. And it says that, that the mother and brothers of Jesus, they thought he was out of his mind, and they go to take him home. And so Jude knows what it is. He knows exactly what it is to be doubtful. So if you're here and you have some doubts, and I know that you're here and you have some doubts, I've been here having doubts before. It's okay. This is a safe place for you to have doubts. We are going to show you mercy. We are going to be merciful to you because that's what Jesus asked us to do, to be merciful, to show mercy. But we're going to show you mercy in such a way that keeps you from perishing. We don't want you to stay there. We don't want you to stay doubtful. We want you to have confidence. And so he, he then goes on to talk about some who have fallen completely into the fire that these other leaders have built. And he says to act decisively and quickly. And he says to snatch them out of the fire. And so imagine if you were camping and one of your kids falls into the fire, what are you going to do? Are you going to deliberate? Are you going to wait till the right moment? Are you going to calendar it? No, you're going to do it. You're going to grab that child and draw them out of the fire as quickly as you can. And that's the language here. That's the idea here. And so this connects back to all these people, these false leaders. And the people there, they're guiding astray. They're in danger of fire. And he says, reach in and grab them and pull them out. Act decisively. Do it now. And so I want you to imagine the people that you know. There is someone on your mind or your heart that's fallen into the fire, and I want you to decisively go after them, sharing with them the hope that we have. Others are so wrapped up in their sin that, they're gonna, that, that, that you're going to have to be careful as you help them untangle. And, and Jude uses a bit of vulgar language here. Um, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you kind of another word picture that's similar. Uh, imagine you're on a plane uh, with your six-month-old. Um, first flight, you're by yourself. Think, you know, dad on the plane with his kid. First flight by yourself, the plane gets up. Right when the plane gets up, poop explosion. <laughs> like up to the shoulders. I don't know if you're a parent, you know that one. Right? It's up to here, Right. And you're in the inside, uh, you know, by the window, because you thought that was a good idea. So you're inside by the window. And, and in mercy, you're, you're, you're thinking, okay, I've got to change the child, right? So you unbuckle, you kind of start getting your stuff, you know, where you need it to be so you can kind of take the clothes off and, you know, do your thing. But you need to be really careful, right, because you don't want to get it everywhere, right? So this is a bad situation. But right when you start to really kind of get into stripping the kid off, and, and no one's helping you. No one's helping you. They're just watching. You're stripping the clothes off the kid, and when you get into the middle of it, the light comes on, and the captain says, I need everybody to sit down because there's going to be turbulence. Like, what do you do? This is like loving people who are caught in sin. 
right in the middle of helping them and trying not to get their stuff on your stuff, right? Turbulence and everything jostles about, right? This is life. And we have to be very careful as we love people who are trapped in really hard sin patterns that we don't get drawn into those things, right? That we don't become party to those, but also that they don't damage our faith, right? That we still have a confidence in God even though sin is wrecking someone's life. Verses 24 and 25. He says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. So you come to the end of the passage and you're like, Oh my gosh, I'm going to have to deal with poop explosion, right? This is going to be really hard. And if you have been here long enough, you know that this is really hard when you do life together. It's really hard. It is discouraging. It's hard. It's challenging. Sometimes you want to give up, and sometimes you don't want to keep yourself. But what is our hope? It says that now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. He knows what we need to hear. When we are face to face with sin and the sin of others, our confidence is shaken many times. And it can seem like the, the tide is greater than our ability to swim. And that's where Christ keeps us. We see it in verse 1, that we are kept by Christ. We see it in verse 24, he is the one that keeps us. And so can you keep yourself in the love of God? No. You have to read that verse, keep yourself in the love of God, through the verses that say he is keeping you. He's holding you. So hang on is the idea. He's going to keep you, so keep on keeping on loving each other is the idea. Listen to this. Not only does he keep us, but he is committed to presenting us blameless before God. You remember the two tests we took? You are not blameless. I am not blameless. I'm in trouble apart from the grace of God. But it says that he's going to take me and stand me up in front of his father and he's going to say, this one's innocent, blameless, justified, righteous, holy, perfect. I didn't do that. That's only what Christ can do. That's my only hope, that he will do that and he will keep me and he will present me and he will drag me by his grace to where I need to be because guess what? I wake up some days and I don't want to go. But by his grace, I go. This is our hope, brothers and sisters. And I know that many of you have had long, hard seasons of ministry and long, hard years and places where you are not sure if other people are going to make it. And you are not sure if you can help them get there. But it is by God's grace that they will get there. He will keep them. So how do we respond to that news? Is that good news to you? It's pretty good news. How do we respond to that? He says this. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Amen. So based on that good news, his response is glory to God. Thank you, Jesus. 
Thank you, Lord. Only you have the dominion and ability and power and sovereignty and goodness to accomplish all of this. Many times we fall in the ditches, right? I either got to get it done on my own or I'm fine just the way that I am. And this is why the Lord's Supper is so good for us because it invites us back to the cross that says, no, 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 you're not good enough. But it also tells us you can't be good enough because if you could do it on your own, then Jesus died for no reason. He died to accomplish this in you and you trust that. He does, you trust. That's it. Trust him, trust him, trust him. And so as we come to this table, that's what he's calling us into. Trust me again. Abandon yourself to me again. I am good. I love you. I have your good in mind. And my work on the cross shows that. It proves that. And so if you have any questions about the love of God for you this morning, this table here is a love feast that says, come, eat with me. I love you. I did everything. Trust me. Let's pray that our hearts would believe that as we approach the table this morning.